as we stand, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're here tonight to celebrate a fact, the fact that you rose from the dead. And we pray as we attend to your words, uh, as those first disciples had to, we too may uh, start to face the consequences of the fact we celebrate. Amen. Do please sit. Well, I did something different um, for this sermon. Uh, If you were here last week, you'll uh, perhaps remember that I I said um, we're going to use uh, uh, electronic communication a bit more, social media. Um, There's a Facebook page, uh, Facebook group and a Facebook page up on Facebook. Uh, I'll be uh, twittering, tweeting uh, for the next uh, uh, 50 days. And so I thought, well, let's, uh, let's use this. And so I asked the Facebook group for Holy Trinity uh, to complete the following sentence. The resurrection of Jesus matters to me because... Uh, I got quite a lot of answers. I think there's something between 20 and 25 answers up uh, on the uh, page. And uh, I'm very glad uh, to say that they are all true. That was a relief to me as the pastor of the church. Uh, But they broke down largely into three categories, and I want to tell you about them. And then I want to go on and offer a fourth. Do please turn to 1 Corinthians 15, it's page 1155. And the first of these is Jesus as pathfinder. Look at verse 6 of uh, chapter 15. Jesus has appeared to Peter, then to the 12, then to 500, then to James, then to Paul himself. And of the 500, some are still living, although, verse 6 tells us, others have, quote, fallen asleep. From now on, death, yes, remains a great enemy, the terrible result of sin, But death is now only a falling asleep because Jesus has pulled the sting of finality from death. Jesus was raised on the third day. So all of those who follow him will discover death to be simply now a falling asleep from which they will awake. Jesus has gone through death to life again, blazed a trail, found a path through death. So we will not truly die, as indeed Jesus himself said in John 11. He said, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Clearly doesn't mean you will never come to the end of your natural days. But rather that everyone who lives and believes in me will find that the experience of death is not that final death that it might have been. Well, let's be clear what that means. I heard Bishop James Jones of Liverpool on radio this morning. Uh, When he became a bishop, a reporter apparently asked him, is Christianity relevant? To which he gave this outstanding answer. 
He said, only to those who are going to die. I think that's absolutely brilliant. I will die, and so will you. And let's be brutally basic this Easter time. Do you have confidence about what will happen to you at death? I do. I do, and some of you don't. Why am I confident? Certainly not because of me, but because Jesus has paved the way, found the path, gone through death, as what we are told is the first of many. And if you have not got that confidence, then Easter is a pretty good time to find it. Do something about it. Talk uh, to me. Uh, Talk to others who will pray for you. Perhaps talk to someone who brought you here this evening. I don't know. The second thing is what we might call Jesus the proof. We say that Jesus died to save us from our sins. I could die and tell you beforehand very sincerely that I was dying to save you from your sins. Now, you might have your doubts. If, however, I rose again from the dead, you might be more likely to believe that my death was what I said it was. Jesus, the perfect man, no one could ever make a charge against him really stick. Jesus, the perfect man, dies the death of a common criminal, executed for the blasphemy of claiming to be the son of God, and for the treason of claiming to be a king instead of Caesar. His death is a physical agony in its pain, a spiritual agony in its uh, clear sense of being deserted by God, and a social agony in terms of being utterly abandoned by everyone else. All that was for me and for you. In the pain of all that separation, he is paying for my willful, absolute, and wicked separation of myself from my God and yours. And that's not just a a kind of uh, me being gloomy. It's not just a kind of negative description of how I may feel on the worst of days. In a way, it's a description of me at my best. Even at my best, in fact, precisely at my best, I cannot help focusing on my best and thus making clear that I am far from the centeredness on others that would echo God's character. That's what sin means in the Bible. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the penalty I should be paying for my sin, but he is the one who pays it. And if such a one is then raised from the dead, it lends credibility to the claim that he is, as he said, giving his life as a ransom for many. The pathfinder and the proof. And the third theme we might call the pattern. In the physical reality of what is raised, we see a pattern of what resurrection will be for all of us. Now, I've certainly known this to happen, that someone meets the claims of Christ and is seriously alarmed that if they turn to follow him, they will lose their own identity they will become a clone, like one of those stormtroopers in a a Star Wars movie. And I can understand that. Christians, after all, believe certain things. We we say a, a, a form of words, a creed, week by week. 
These are the things we hold in common. Christians engage in certain practices that we value in common. So we can understand that someone may say, will I lose the sense of who I am? And so the pattern of Jesus that we actually read is important. First of all, yes, there is a sense of being slightly distant from this life and what has gone before. Jesus says to Mary in the garden, don't hold on to me. There's something different. Don't hold on to me. You can't hold on to me anymore. He speaks with his disciples, uh, speaking to them of God as my father and your father. Yes, it's the same word, father, but there's clearly a difference. My father and your father. There's difference. Nonetheless, there's still manifestly this person with his old realities. In the garden, he does call her Mary. She is as real for him as ever she was. He sits on a beach, builds a fire, cooks a breakfast, and calls out to his old friends to come and join him. He appears to them and promises peace. He is himself, perhaps now more than ever himself. This is no clone, so why should I be? Is it not possible that this Jesus, if I follow him, will make of me someone who is more me than ever I was before. And if you are one who has never faced the claim that Jesus Christ is the risen and living Lord, and if you find yourself nervous of that claim of his upon your life, then look at his followers. They were more authentically, after the resurrection, who they were meant to be than they had been before. They took risks that they had not taken before. This Jesus is no airy-fairy spiritual creature. He touches, he tastes, he hears, he walks. Oh, and he can pass through locked doors. So how cool is that? There is hope for the dust that we are that we shall become more real than ever before in every way. Well, those are three things that are true about the resurrection. Jesus is the pathfinder through death. He is the proof of what was going on at the cross. He is the pattern of a life more real than I know right now if I don't follow him. But for a fourth thing, I want to pay attention to the context of the church in Corinth. This passage is uh, often read as an Easter passage, but as an Easter passage, it's separated from its context, and I, I want to put it back into its context. What's going on? Well, the church in Corinth is being super spiritual. They are loving what it seems that the Holy Spirit is doing among them. So much so that they are getting around to reckoning that the body doesn't matter. You can do what you like with it. If you want to be super disciplined and stay away from meat, all that protein, and from sex, all that yuck, that's fantastic, great. 
Alternatively, if you want to gorge on food or indulge in sex, that's great too. The body simply doesn't matter. And Paul has already had to say to them, you know, yes, the Holy Spirit's fantastic, but you could do well to pay a little less attention to the things of the Spirit and a bit more attention to some common sense here. Now, like lots of Paul's letters, this is like listening to one part of a phone call, one person in a phone call. We don't know what the others are saying. And if we were in a long series in Corinthians, I could take you all through it. But I hope you'll trust me if I say that it looks like what the Corinthians are saying is something like this. Look, Paul, we, we've already achieved true spiritual status. The life of the Spirit is ours. Christ has come among us by his Spirit. What happens to the body, what happened to his body, it's simply not relevant. And what, even more so, what happens to our own bodies at death, it's just irrelevant. We are certain of life in the Spirit now. And so Paul writes chapter 15 as his response. And he insists that if the dead are not raised, then Christ wasn't raised. So we cannot be certain of any of the things that Christ promised. But if they want to be sure of anything that Christ promised, including the life of his spirit, then they have to go with the package. And the package says that he did in fact rise, so we will rise after death. And if we will rise, then we better face the whole set of consequences. That's the shape of the whole chapter. And to get at some of those consequences, I want to go back uh, to the garden for a moment. For me, it's always been the most dramatic moment of the resurrection. And it was the resurrection that convinced me uh, to turn to Christ as Lord. Other people have other roots in, but that was what it... That's what did it for me. One day a man will come towards me whose face I may not recognize, but he will say my name, Alan, and I will know him all over again for the first time. And he will say your name if you are a follower of his. The resurrection of Jesus does not just look forward. Yes, he's my pathfinder beyond death. Yes, he is alive, the proof that what he was doing is acceptable to God the Father. Yes, he shows the pattern of what life will be beyond death itself. But he takes the trouble to come back to Mary, back to the garden, back into the life of the disciples, Peter, James, the Twelve, the Five Hundred, We do not get the full picture if all we do is look forward, beyond our death. In fact, if you want to stay with the peas, he comes back into life as present Lord. Because there are 40 days in which he is here again. And those days matter. Not so much in themselves, but just as a reminder of what the first day of resurrection was about. There is a man who has been raised to be Lord in this world. He is alive and his claim to be Lord and King is staked in this world. 
He returns to those he knows, and he gives them commands for this world. Let's, uh, we're going to go way beyond our reading tonight. Go to verse 25 for a moment. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Well, where is he going to be reigning? There's no point in him reigning in heaven unless he's reigning in this world and putting his enemies under his feet in this world. Christ the King is raised to be Lord in the world that we know. The same world you came from to be here tonight, the same world you'll go to when bank holiday is over. The Father sends Jesus, and Jesus returns to the Father. But does he take his Spirit with him to be with him beside the Father? No, he sends his Spirit to be his presence, the presence of the Lord, the King, in this world. Jesus the Lord, risen, gives meaning to now, to this world. Because it's in this world that he is raised to be King. We're not sent a message from the beyond. Oh, that by the way, we have a message for you, and Jesus was welcomed into the halls of heaven as Lord and King, as the one whose sacrifice was accepted. No, he is raised in this world that crucified him. What I'm trying to get at is this. The resurrection of Jesus does indeed point forward to the issues of death, and the beyond death. The death and the beyond death that will be ours. But it also points back. He's taught the kingdom. He's inaugurated the kingdom. Now in the resurrection, he unveils the power of the kingdom so that we who follow are not just waiting for death, but actively bringing this world under the authority of the king. Let's pray. And just to have in your mind, what are you going to be doing come Tuesday? We've already uh, prayed with Richard, recognizing that this is Easter evening, and we don't always feel that sense of elation of uh, Easter Sunday. What are you going to be doing, not just Easter evening, but come Tuesday? Who are you going to be seeing tomorrow? Is it a day for jollity, Uh, a day of rest? For some, it'll be a day of being with family or friends in relationships that aren't always easy. Now, convention dictates that if you pray 
it must be the end of a sermon, but it is not so. But I want you to have in your mind your Tuesday as we go forward for a few moments more. Because I want to commend to you two ways in which we see the present lordship of Jesus coming to pass in this world. And I'm going to call them, for the sake of alliteration, the work and the wager. First, the work. Now, for this, I want to go right to the end of that chapter. If you've closed it because you thought we were praying, therefore it must be the end of the sermon, open it again to page uh, 1155, 1 Corinthians 15. This is a very long chapter, and it's important to see how it is, I think it's important anyway, to see how Paul gets to where he's going. And so I'm going to ask for a shape of this chapter to appear on the screen. Thanks, Barry. I'm going to take us on a whistle-stop tour through chapter 15. Now, I don't know how you work. Um, I personally find, oh, that's interesting, you just don't quite get chapter 6. Well, that's actually not a bad thing. Um, I'll make that work for us in a minute. But um, I don't know how uh, you work. I I tend to find I can look at a screen or I can listen. Now, I I don't mind which you do, but what I do recommend is that you don't try and do both. Because I'm going to go on a whistle-stop tour through uh, the chapter. The beginning in in verses 1 and 2, he says, look, folks, this is serious. And I'm only passing on, verse 3, what I already heard. Um, I'm telling you that the resurrection really happened, and I'm going to tell you who it happened to, verses 4 through to 8. The content of what the uh, resurrection uh, means uh, is there in verses 9 to 11. And the logic of the resurrection is there in verses 12 through to 19. That's the bit about... If Jesus is raised, then we're all raised, and so on. Then in verses 20 to 28, uh, if Christ is raised first, then everyone can be raised, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 29, if the dead are raised, then life now matters. And then a little kind of bracket, as it were, because they're clearly questioning what form does the body raised have. And he says, verse 35, okay, there is a different form to the body that's raised. Then in verse 50, he says, whatever the form will be, with Christ we are victorious over death. So, verse 58, stand firm and work for the Lord. And I'll take a break at that point. You see, you could talk to the Corinthians till you were blue in the face about the resurrection, and they could say it's the life of the Spirit now that matters. And Paul is countering... Don't be so up yourselves. Put your bodies to work. And look at verse 58. That's why I took you through all that. Because verse 58, though it's a long way from where we started, is still part of the argument. Because Jesus has won the victory over death and sin, you are able to stand firm and you can give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Don't stand by idle, waiting for some spiritual experience. Get stuck into this world in which your king has returned from the dead. You are saved, not out of this world, 
but precisely back into it. I wonder how often you find yourself thinking that the life of discipleship is hard work. Jesus is risen, it's okay for him. He's with God, but we're slogging on. And and we know that there is uh, a following on that is, as it were, in the footsteps of Jesus. But sometimes it can feel like he's gone on a long way ahead and the, the, the struggle is tough for us. And we can forget that it's in this world that he's risen. He's not so far ahead that he's not looking back at us and saying, Mary, Anne, Megan, Martin, whatever. This is the world in which the kingdom will come, where creation will be renewed, where a new heaven and earth will meet each other. We are not just getting on with orders till we die. But this world is the stuff of the kingdom. There are 700 daffodils in church today. I knew you'd want to know. They come from farm, daffodil farms, grown in soil. This world, that soil, those flowers, all that we encounter is the stuff of this kingdom. Every life we touch, whether it's tomorrow, in time off, or Tuesday back at work, every life we touch is a life over which Christ's resurrection proclaims him to be king, whether a particular individual knows it or not. And that's why I love the start of chapter 6 and verse 1. He's talked about the resurrection. He's talked about all this glorious spiritual stuff. And then he says, chapter 6, verse 1, now let's talk about money. I love that. It's not separate. Forget the chapter divisions. They don't exist in the original. Know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, chapter 15. Now about the collection for God's people. Chapter 16, work, relationships, education, family, it's all his now because he rose in this world. And then connected to that, the wager. There's a very weird bit in chapter 15, and because it's weird, we don't kind of pay attention to it. We skate over it, and we hope we don't have to read it out very often. Verse 20. uh, Nine. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? No, I don't know what it means. Neither do you, okay? Um, uh, It looks like they were thinking that somehow baptism, perhaps communion too, was spiritually effective even over death. But because of those weird verses, we then miss verse 30. If this life is all there is, then we have to protect ourselves. But... Verse 30, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If this life is just a two-part adventure, and you know the outcome, then it becomes possible to risk everything, to wager everything, to stake everything that you have, everything that you are, on the truth that Jesus Christ is risen. Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Because we're stupid? No, because we know we're going to get our bodies back. We can throw ourselves utterly, completely, entirely into the work of God in this world, risking all kinds of consequences, wagering our very selves, because the future has a particular shape in hope. 
I didn't, it didn't occur to me until I had to do the notice about them, but think of the Jafaris. How mad are they moving to another country, taking on a religion that they encounter in that country, uh, putting uh, intelligent people, putting their livelihoods at stake to enter into the madness that is the British asylum system. Why are they doing it? Because Jesus is risen. It's a mad courage. It's nothing, of course, to those who are putting themselves through much worse persecution than that. How is it that we endanger ourselves every hour? Because we're just passing through. Because the resurrection means this isn't the home that other people think it is. Yes, the resurrection looks forward to life beyond death, but just as much it points back and makes life, real life, risky, hard-working, completely mad life, possible before death. Because death doesn't matter anymore. Only life matters now. That is the end of the sermon, and let's pray again. We sang, once again, I thank you. Once again, I pour out my life. Lord Jesus, it is because we can thank you for your life, because you have risen to be Lord, that it becomes possible for us to pour out our lives. And as we think of our our Monday, our Tuesday, the days that are to come, we pray that you would become ever more real to us in your Lordship so that we can pour out our lives more and more, that the world may see there is no explanation for the madness of the life of Christians unless Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen.